So let's get excited about Operation Christmas Child uh, this year again. Uh, Franklin Graham runs a great ministry called Samaritan's Purse. Part of that is Operation Christmas Child. We get to be involved in that and take leadership regionally in that, which is just great. So before you leave today, you got to leave with a box, right? How many of you have done this before? All right. Yeah, we leave with a box. We get to fill it up. Just great time. And we got jambalaya today. Do not leave with a box filled with jambalaya. Leave with an empty box. Eat your jambalaya here. Then when you're done, grab a box, take it home, fill it up, bring it back. And we just have a wonderful time blessing children around the world and also giving them a message of hope and love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what we're doing, and we are excited about that. I do want to give you an update on what's happening in Tiffin. We've been uh, working on that in prior to our uh, construction company, which is uh, Klaus coming in and taking care of, uh, uh, of putting up a small building as part of that complex. And as they do that, we're kind of waiting but we've had a bunch of guys go over there and do some stuff that we wanted to get done before they came in, which they have done. We've had 35 of our men actually over there helping uh, David and Jason take care of business there. It's, uh, Pam and I stopped by there Friday night. It looks amazing. If you're one of those 35 guys, if you would stand up, if you've been over at Tiffin kind of helping pull that off, would you stand just so we can show you our appreciation? We, 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 we could not have done this without you. I was just blown away uh, when I got over there and saw what, what was happening there and what's been done. And again, so, but here's, here's my prayer request. It's kind of the same that we've had before. Uh, we've got this building, which we need in the next couple of weeks, maybe we'll get a sign out there. We have this building that's in between, in Tiffin, between the airport and the hospital. And we have, we're planning on a campus next year. The timing is what I'd like you to pray about. We were hoping to get in there in February. Our, our contractor said, you know, probably March, but we could tell that they're not really even confident about March. And so, but to, you know, after March, it's April. There's actually a real late Easter. And so that could still be before Easter. But then right after that, you go into the summer. The summer's the worst time to try to start a campus. And so we're really praying for early March. You know, that's what we, we're wanting is early March. So if you'd pray about that, who, who will say, yeah, I'll, I'll be praying with you guys about that. I, I'd really appreciate that. Luckily, uh, fortunately for us, God is a lot smarter than we are. So God may know stuff that we don't know. But so we're just praying that, you know, it seems to us like the sooner the better. But uh, we're just praying for God's wisdom and all that and that he would make it happen the way he wants it to happen. So that's the deal there. We are in a series called Epic, and what we're doing in this series is really we're connecting the whole, we're, we're running through the whole Old Testament, we're condensing it down so the whole Bible sort of makes sense from the beginning leading up to the time of Christ is what Epic's about. We actually started with a series called This Explains Everything, where we talked about Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 in three weeks. Then we, and that covered uh, Adam and Eve, the fall. Then we went into Epic. We talked about, for example, Noah, and then how the focus of the Bible shifts from being global to down to one family that becomes one nation in about Genesis chapter 12 is where that happens. And that man is Abraham, and God says that coming through Abraham, 
uh, will be an heir that will bless the world and there will be a nation that will occupy a certain land that that's all that was all promised to Abraham and really part of that promise was in answer to something that happened way back in Genesis uh, when the seed of the woman was going to come and you know so all this ties together is what we're showing you and so we, we talked about that. We talked about Noah, talked about Abraham. And then Abraham's great-grandson was Joseph. And Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. He ends up in Egypt uh, through God's providence. He ends up second in the land. And right before, seven years before a famine hits, he happens to be there. And he comes second. And then when this famine hits, he makes provision for his whole family, which is the grandson of Abraham, Jacob, and Jacob's whole clan, 70 down there plus five is 75 in all, and they all came to Egypt to live. And Joseph, rich and powerful, maybe the most powerful nation on earth, he's number two, and he provides for them in a land called Goshen within the borders of Egypt. But then Joseph dies. And there's a new regime in Egypt. And so a generation later, the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, are enslaved by Egypt. They remain slaves for 400 years. 400 years. And from that time, they grow from a people of about 75 to, a, to numbering around 2 million people. And they're enslaved. And then God rose up a man named Moses who had kind of a unique history and used him to deliver people. That's what uh, Tim talked about yesterday. God used Moses to deliver the people of Israel or the Hebrew people or Abraham's offspring from Egypt. But as they were delivered, uh, they di it didn't happen maybe the way they expected because there was actually a major trade route, really a highway going through Canaan along the coast of the Mediterranean down into Egypt. And they didn't just jump on that highway and head north, which would have made all, all the sense in the world really, but God takes them on a different way, a zigzag path. They cross the Red Sea, they go to a place called Mount Sinai in the Negev Desert, and there they receive the law of God. And after that, they continue wandering in this desert region for 40 years. And that, that is enough time for one generation to pass away. And, and what happened was there was a pattern that developed during all their wandering in Egypt. And I want us to see that pattern this morning. And it's basically God's holiness, humanity's sinfulness, or the sinfulness of God's people, specifically the complaining of God's people, and then the judgment that brings, and then God's provision for that righteous judgment. So the pattern that we see over and over while they're wandering for 40 years, straight, you know, shortest distance between two points, for God sometimes is a zigzag, and that's what's happening during these 40 years. And we keep seeing over and over God's holiness, our sinfulness, humanity's sinfulness, and then, God, and then the judgment that righteously brings, and then God's provision. So we're going to see that now. Now, God's holiness, where I want us to see that is, oh, um, one more thing. 
while they're wandering in this wilderness, there's not a lot there. There's two million people. So God actually provides for his people through a miracle called manna, where he feeds his people daily. And uh, a lot of times God uses miracles that's sort of like part of nature, but you know, he uses it in a specific way. But man is not like that at all. It's just total miracle. It appears every morning, actually six days a week. And on the sixth day they gathered on Friday, they had twice as much and they gathered that so they wouldn't have to gather on Saturday. So, but every, every day there's a provision for them. It looks like heavy frost on the ground. It's white, but as they gather it, it's little seeds that actually taste like wafers made with honey, like bread and honey. And here's the way I would relate it, just to put it in our context. Texas Roadhouse, hot rolls, cinnamon butter. Do you hear me? How many can say amen? All right, yeah, we get that. And so it's this great, you know, they, the people love it, and this is what God provides for them every day, although again on Friday they gather twice as much to hold them for Saturday, and, and it's just always there, God's provision. And this, this but I want us to see uh, this pattern. First of all, God's holiness. During this time, I mentioned that they received the law. God prepares the people of Israel to receive the law. Now when they're wandering, they're a nation of two million plus people, no country. But during this time, God gives his law to Moses, and Moses is actually writing this book. But anyway, God prepares his people. Exodus 19 is where we're at, beginning in verse 10, which if you're using a Bible in the Cherokee in front of you is page 77, or if you're using your device, turn it on. Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, not hard to find. Exodus chapter 19 and beginning of verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. This is God getting them ready, the people ready to receive the law. Verse 12, you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So it's like, whoa, tune in, this is important. Then verse 16 continues. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud came upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. So they're getting, this is not normal, something supernatural is happening. Verse 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Okay, so all this is painting this picture of God's holiness. God is separate. God is transcendent above us. And when he comes to meet with human beings, it's a big deal. And so he's saying the mountain becomes holy. Nobody can go on the mountain. Could you imagine if you were there? So all of a sudden you get, hey, there's no ordinary volcano thing going on here. 
something supernatural is happening. Moses is talking and God is answering and you're standing there, all the people in the assembly at the base of the mountain, kind of watching all this happen. And then maybe you're there with your family, your kids, maybe even your pets, and you're hanging on to them because you know that if they bolt and even touch the border that's been set up to separate the people from the mountain, it's instant death. And so even your dog you're hanging on to because nobody can go there. This is holy. And what God is teaching his people is that God's holiness is nothing to be trifled with. God is holy and we are not. And the message is clear. And and then this penalty of death for even touching the mountain or even the border that sections this off. You know, today we we look at stuff like that and say, what, God's going to kill somebody just because they touch something or whatever? And, you know, what's going on? But this is God's holiness. And this is the seriousness of the sin when we rebel against what he says. And if you remember, it's been this way throughout since the very beginning. Remember, in our last series, when we started at the beginning of Genesis, through one act of disobedience to God, it's amazing because they could pretty much do anything. There's just one thing they couldn't do it. And what happened? That's what they did. And through one act of disobedience, that brought all the sin, suffering, and misery that we experience in our world today. That explains it all right there. But it wasn't just confined to that. I mean, later, as people began to multiply on the earth, and at some point in history, everybody's thoughts was continually sinful and evil and against God. What does God do? God hits the reset button at some point. And says, boom, we're going to start over. And Noah and his family, are, they're the only ones that survive. Noah, his three sons, and, and their wives. I mean, that's it. Reset. Boom. Starting over. Rainbow says, not going to do that again. Not going to destroy the earth with water again. And so now, here they are. This is the holiness of God. And I know when people hear that, they're saying, well, you know what? That's like the Old Testament. That's the being an angry God. But in the New Testament, God is nice and gentle. It's like God 2.0. You know, it's a, a better version of God. No, God is holy, Old Testament and New Testament. His holiness runs throughout. For example, even in the New Testament, remember Jesus comes, he, he dies on the cross, central point in all history. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But then when he comes and he unleashes his church on the world, and the church has started. Remember, there was a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and then they do something that just doesn't seem that bad. They're, they're, people are bringing stuff to share with other people, and they come in, and they give in the offering, and they exaggerate what they gave. It, it could have been that they were generous. We don't know exactly, but, but they just exaggerated what they gave. And what happened? They died because of that. God's holiness is something that we would, should never trifle with. That's what God is trying to teach us. He's transcendent and holy, and we need to kind of, and we're not, and we need to kind of get that. God's holiness, his purity, is absolute and it's perfect. And we cannot enter into the presence of God with our sin. God has to make provision for us. So 
Moses goes up, he receives the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. A lot of people push back on the rest of the law. We're going to actually maybe talk about that next, next time. But anyway, God gets the Ten Commandments and, and this law, and, uh, and he comes down. And even just the Ten Commandments, the beginning of the law, if we look at those commandments and think through them honestly, we will see that God is holy and we are not. I mean, I looked through those Ten Commandments, and then with the implications of what Jesus taught about them, that, okay, well, I've broken all these commandments. Not just one commandment, or not just one commandment a few times, every commandment. God is holy, and we are not, and we are sinful, and it was the same for God's people back in the wilderness after they left Egypt. And so back to the pattern, God's holiness. Next thing, people's sin, specifically people's complaints against God and the judgment that that brings. You see, it's not just that people were sinful, but here uh, they're, they're in the desert. They know the final destination is Canaan. They know that God has promised this land, the promised land, to Abraham and his descendants, God's people. So they know all that. And so they're in the wilderness. So, so you have Egypt down here, and then you have the, like the Mediterraneans over here, and then you have Canaan, and then you have kind of like the Dead Sea here, and you know, Sea of Galilee, cool map, huh? And then, but down here, kind of in triangular, big piece of real estate is the Negev. It's a desert. This is where they've been. And they're wandering around, and then there's this time, and this keeps happening. This pattern keeps happening. They keep sort of getting cranky and rebelling against God, and God keeps judging them and providing for them. But, so this one time, and, and this is in Numbers 21, if you want to start turning there, the people, they're, the, Mo, Moses is still living, the gen, one generation is passing, and the next generation is coming on board in this 40 years. And for example, Aaron, Moses' brother, dies. Miriam, before him, Miriam dies, Moses' sister, so some minor players there that you just are in there. But anyway, people are dying, new generation taking over, and then God is leading his people, but then they see in this one instant, God's not leading them northwest where they want to go. He's leading them southwest, like northwest. He's leading them southeast, like the opposite. Yeah, anyway. So that's what's going on. Let's bring it in. And Numbers 21. All right. So they rebel and they complain because they're backtracking. And by the way, when they, re when they complain, they're breaking commandment number 10, commandment number one, whatever. But they're doing all this. And their complaints against God brings God's judgment. Numbers 21, verse 4. And then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. This people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And they're doing the same thing that their parents did at the beginning when they were first taken out of Egypt, complaining against God. So now this new generation, they're doing the same thing, only it's even worse. 
because they're not just complaining, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? But now they're complaining about God's provision. We loathe this miserable food that's provided for them every day, free. And God judges them because they're complaining. Next verse, verse six. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. It's one of the strangest stories in the Bible. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on a standard. And it came about that if a servant bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. W weird story, right? Are you with me on this? Does that seem a little weird to you? Seems kind of weird to me. But, but, and by the way, this symbol of a snake on a pole or snake on a stick as a symbol of healing this is from 3,500 years ago. In this, we still that see that symbol today, right? We, we see it. That's the symbol. Or, or sometimes you see it this way. But the point is that that snake on a stick is a symbol of healing even now. Where did that come from? It started 3,500 years ago in the wilderness with this incident that happened during Moses' lifetime. So God delivers them out of Egypt. There's, from 75 people, it grows to like 2 million plus people. He has to provide for them miraculously for them to even survive as they're wandering around the Israel for the wilderness for 40 years. And they did that because God knew, and God tells us, they weren't ready to move into the land and become a nation. He provides for them daily. But here's the thing. Over and over in the wilderness experience, the people are complaining to God. And when you read about this wilderness journey, I know a lot of us like to skip over Numbers and Deuteronomy, but when you're reading about this, here, let, me just, let me just boil it down for you. God seems especially irritated with complaining. I mean, you just, you just got to get that from the story. It happens over and over. And, and, and you might wonder, boy, complaint, that does not seem like that bad of a, you know, in, in the list of sins, I mean, it's not even in the Ten Commandments, that doesn't seem so bad complaining. But God, complaining seems to really irritate God. And, and I think I know why. Because when we complain, we can complain about God, and that's the worst. But when we complain about anything, a lot of times I think it is really a complaint about God that's buried under there somewhere. And let me try to explain that. When we complain about stuff, especially if we complain about God, what we're saying is, God, you don't love me. God, you don't care about me. God, you're not doing what I want you to do. And when we, we're doing that, we are questioning God's goodness. What we are doing when we do that is we're actually involved in character assassination against a righteous and holy God who created us and gave us life. That's what we're doing when we complain. And 
When we, at its core, when we complain, it's not just character assassination. It's, it's that because we start believing that God is not good or God doesn't love us. And then when we start believing that, we rebel by taking control of our life and doing life our way, not God's way, which then results in further judgment because we do things wrong. And the judgment here is kind of bizarre. You know, fiery snakes, meaning snakes that when they bit people produce a fiery burning and then people died. And so, but the judgment here fits the crime. Think about it. What are they complaining about? They get to go out from their tents every morning and pick up Texas Roadhouse buns with cinnamon butter and they're complaining about it. I mean, they just pick up from the ground free food, delicious food, but they've had it a lot and they're complaining about it. And all of a sudden, one day they go out and there's not just the delicious food, which is still there, by the way, but now all of a sudden the ground has fiery serpents that's biting them, that's burning them, that's freaking them out. So where God provided what they complained about now is producing something that is judging them. And why does God do that? He does that actually graciously so that the people will see their sin. You know, sometimes God's judgment on us is a good thing because it helps us see. Without these snakes, the people would be blind to the fact of what they're doing, how much of a sin they're complaining against God really is. But notice, nobody has to tell them this is judgment from God. They figure it out. All this is snakes, biting people, burning sensation. You know, people are having fevers and they're dying. And they're like, oh, this is from God. Oh, because we complain. They knew. And all of a sudden, their sin becomes obvious to them. And it's the same way today. Sometimes we can experience God's judgment in order for us to see the, the rebellion against God in our life, God uses that. And, and to that extent, then it can be a positive thing in our life. I'm not saying everything that's that way. I'm just saying that can be that way. They couldn't see these people, God's people couldn't see the poison in their own souls until they got the poison in their bodies. That's what made them realize, oh, we messed up. Then they admit their sin. And I know it's hard not to complain. And probably few of us outright complain against, because sometimes we do. Sometimes we have a tragedy or something. We complain against God, and God's big enough to handle that. But most most of the time, you know, we just complain about whatever is in our life. And it's hard not to complain. And the reason it's hard not to complain, because we can envision how things could be better. But it's not better, so we complain and we gripe. As a matter of fact, I think a a whole bunch of the various sins that we can struggle with, at the core of it, it's really us complaining against God. You know, if we don't like our financial situation and and we're complaining about that, then then we're tempted to, to fudge on our taxes, which is stealing or breaking the law. And... And we do that, but we feel justified. 
But, but at the core of that is because God's not really giving me what I need. So I got to take it some other way. If it's, it doesn't matter if it's pornography or stealing or lying or whatever it is, the under, base, the under basis of that, deep under that sin somewhere is a complaint against God that God, you don't love me. God, you haven't provided for me like I need. God, you've let me down in this area. So in this area, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to do my own thing. And that will always bring judgment because it's wrong when we do our own thing. And so sometimes it's not that we're just only aggressively doubting God and his goodness. Sometimes subtly, without even thinking about it, we're doubting God's graciousness and his goodness. And when we violate God's commands, it's because we don't think, we're we're no longer trusting that God is good in that area of our life. We're thinking God messed up or God let me down. That's why complaining is a big deal. That's why it deserves punishment. So no matter what area it is, maybe it's your marriage. After 30 years of marriage counseling, I'm more and more convinced. We don't really talk about it that much in marriage counseling, but maybe we should. More and more I'm convinced that if you are disappointed or bitter or mad or angry or whatever toward your spouse, it, that is kind of like a complaint against God. Because you're kind of like, well, God, you know, I got saddled with this person. That's really jacking my life up. And now look what's happening now. And I'm going to have to take this in my own head. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be bitter and I'm going to be angry and I'm going to be mean, and, you know, and all those things. What I've learned in marriage counseling is whatever you see in your spouse that you're not liking, I think I'm becoming more and more convinced that God has put that person in your life with those traits so that God can work on your heart, so that you can learn to be more loving, more sacrificial, more generous, more kind, more patient, and on and on and go. And it's really God's mercy. It's God helping you to be a better you through this person, even though you're thinking this person's like a thorn in my side, I can, you know. It's really just what you need. That person is just what you need. God did not make a mistake. God can use that person if you're a believer in your life. And so, whether you just know you're doing something wrong, a sin, like I mentioned, pornography or cheating on your taxes or whatever, it's it's really because you're no longer believing that God is good in that area of your life. That's, That's what we're doing when we're bad. When we're sad... It's because we no longer trust that God is gracious in our life. And so we have this, you know, if, if that just character, I'm not talking about a tragedy, but, you know, if, if you're just characterized as a person that's just kind of always sad, you, you're not seeing God's graciousness. And if you're angry, you're not seeing God's love. If you're bad, you're not seeing his goodness. If you're, if you're sad, you're not seeing his graciousness. You know, if you're mad, you're not seeing his love. You know, and, and God can change those things in you because God is always merciful to his people. And that brings us to the third point here, God's provision. God always provides through repentance and faith. God always provides for his people even when they deserve judgment. 
And by the way, we all deserve judgment. God always provides for his people then and now through repentance and faith. And that's what happens in the story. God, God's response is not to downplay their sin because he's holy. That's what we do because we're not holy. Oh, yeah, you did that against me. Oh, you know, they, that's not so bad. Don't worry about it. Which is gracious. That's nice. God does not lie. So God does not downplay our sin, but God provides. And even his judgment is good if it helps us see truth. God doesn't, for example, for them, he didn't leave them complaining in their sin. He, he showed them truth. He delivered them from that. But the whole snake story, it's just a weird story. And it's, it's kind of hard to understand. But what helps us understand it is actually Jesus. You know, we're talking about everything that's happening in the Old Testament is all pointing toward the, the seed of the woman, pointing to the heir of Abraham. Later, we're going to see pointing to the son of David. You know, it's all pointing to the future, to the Messiah. Everything's pointing to the future. And then Jesus, this, so you have this obscure story that takes up half a chapter in numbers. Jesus, during his ministry, brings up this story. He actually brings, you know, the, what, what do you think the most famous verse in the Bible is? John 3, I'm assuming, maybe not, but John 3.16 is what I come John 3.16. Do you realize the two verses before John 3.16, Jesus is talking about the snakes in the wilderness and the snake that was lifted up? So check it out. John 3.14, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's not getting it. He's not really understanding how Jesus could be the Messiah. And here's what Jesus says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man, that's how Jesus refers to himself, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Then John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's going on here? Jesus is explaining it. I've read this story many times in the Old Testament, and I'm always, here's what I'm always thinking. Why a snake? Why, why, why does God tell Moses to make a snake? Snake. Snakes are what's killing the people. It could have been anything. Why a snake? And not only are snakes what's killing the people, a snake is like the symbol of evil, kind of, right? I mean, remember the garden? Remember the curse? I mean, a snake, it's not conjuring up any positive images. I mean, why a snake? What's going on there? But Jesus is telling us something, and it's profound. It's earth-shattering. It, it, it freaks us. In these verses, Jesus is saying, hey, the bronze serpent that was lifted up in the days of Moses is a picture of him. And even then we're going, whoa, 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 a snake? The picture of, Je that does not fit. That does not compute, but it does. It's a picture of Jesus, righteous God, who became sin for us. Righteous God who became the curse 
for us. Righteous God who paid our penalty. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, talking about God, he made him, talking about Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became the curse. Jesus became sin during that time on the cross. Why? So that we could be righteous, so he could deal with all of our sin, so that we can be freed from that, so our punishment could be paid for that by Christ himself. He became sin for us. You know how sometimes I use props? What I needed for this Sunday was a poisonous snake <laughs> to let loose in the auditorium. <laughs> and so, boom, off the thing. And you know how snakes are? They're fast. They're wave. They have no legs. They're fast. And then what would be happening if I showed you this snake in a box? You know, it's like a cobra or something. Deathly poisonous. And then, oh, Dropped it, the box opens, he slithers. I mean, everybody's up, right? Everybody's up on their seats, right? Or on top of your spouse that's on the seat, you know, or what, you know, everybody's off the floor, right? And everybody's screaming. I've heard you people, I know. Every, we're all screaming, you know, a snake, you know, and it's slithering, and nobody knows, they're hard to see. All you see is chairs, but you know it's there, and it's quick, and you're freaking out, right? But then let's say one of our men, Sees the snake, boom, crushes the snake's head with a strike, boom, crushes it. And, and he says, I got him, don't worry. Nobody's coming down. You know, everybody's like, yeah, right. You know, I, I, I got him, I got him. Everybody's, you know, what would he have to do to convince you? He had to lift it up. Oh, yeah, that's the snake. There it is. Now you climb down. That's what God did for you in Christ. That's how Jesus is the snake, is the curse, is the one who willingly took on all of our sin as he hung on a pole 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. That's our Savior. The Bible is not a collection of random, unrelated stories. It's one story. God's saga through time. The whole Old Testament keeps pointing us right to Jesus. And I love the fact that the people, they just had to look, right? They, the people who are bitten, they just had to look at the serpent. They just had to see it. Look on the serpent. They didn't have to go to the serpent and touch it. They didn't have to light candles or incense to the, to the you know, they didn't have to do any religion. They, they just had to look. I so much love that. Because when we're caught up in our sin, that's all we need to do. Look to Jesus. You're struggling, look to Jesus. See his goodness. You're angry, look to Jesus. 
See his love. You're depressed, sad. Look to Jesus and see his grace. And that's what we all do today. You see, we've all been infected with sin. From the beginning, Genesis explains everything. And God provides a way out, an escape. God provides in his grace a way for us to be delivered, a a way to be saved. And it's by looking to his son in faith, just like they looked at the serpent in faith, just a look in faith, that did it. That's what he's calling us to do. And so, if, you, if you're here today and you know, yeah, I'm in, I've placed my faith in Christ, I know I can be saved no other way, it's only looking to Jesus in faith, I'm not adding anything to that. If you understand that, that's great. If you don't, if you're like, ah, I'm a little fuzzy on that, that's not the way I would say it. If somebody asks me, well, we would love to talk to you more, and we're going to wrap up our service here, and in room one, I'll be there with some of the other pastors. And so, on your way out, if you wanted to ask some questions, you can just veer to the left, come on in. We're happy to talk to you, answer any questions you may have about that. If you don't want to talk and just want, you know, we can give you something to take home and just check out in the privacy of your own home. But if you're a believer and you're struggling with sin, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Trust in his goodness, his grace, his love. He'll deliver you. This is our message, right? This is our, this, and and this is my challenge today. If you're a believer today, if you're not a believer, that you think about this most important decision you'll ever make, placing your trust in Christ. It's the only way to deal with your sin. And if you are a believer, it's if you're caught up in sin, if you've got issues in your life, and we all have issues, but if you're just being troubled by an issue, look to Jesus in this. Remember his goodness. But also that we have this message that God has entrusted us to share with other people. That's why when you got your bulletin, we actually had a, uh, there's an Operation Christmas Child brochure in there. And so that, that tells you all about that and what to do with your box. And then there's this card, and this card is glossy on one side with this image and and some information about our church, and it's unglossy on the other side, and that's, there's a reason for that. This is meant for you to, we've never done this before, so something new. We, We made this so you could take this home, cut this up into four parts, and then, because it's non glossy, you can write a personal note to your friend saying, hey, I think you'd enjoy coming to church this Sunday, and give it to them. So just a card, it has information, and then the backside, a personal note from you. And our job is to share the, the good news, God's provision, with people. And I, and I don't know if you've been able to, to really talk to people about God much, but if you're finding that hard to do, we're trying to make it easier for you to give this card to somebody. If you need more than four, there's some at the information table. But cut these apart, write a note to somebody, and, say, and, and maybe you need to include, hey, and if you come, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you at such a, the west door. I'll meet you at the east door. I'll take you out to dinner afterwards, wh- whatever. That's our job, is to point people 
And, and just, could you imagine in that day, if you knew somebody who was snake bit and you knew over the hill was the image of the bronze serpent and you heard what Moses said, you'd say, come on, you got to look at the serpent. You got to look at this bronze snake on a pole. And they're like, no, I don't need no bronze snake on a pole. I'm dying here. Come on. You would be dragging them, begging them, pleading with them to come and save their lives. It's the same thing for us today, right now, with the people we know. Because only looking to Jesus, that's, that's our only hope. And we want to share that with others. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for this day uh, that we can have a meal together. And we thank you for that meal. And just a fellowship together here at church. Get to know each other. And Lord, then the guys can go out and play some football, and we just thank you for the fellowship that we have, because it's, it's all in you. And Father, if there's anybody here that's kind of new, and maybe they're feeling, wow, I've never heard of this, and not really fitting in, I don't know. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, first of all, but that they would feel comfortable here at Grace, because they're exactly like all of us used to be. Thanks for loving us. Thank you most of all for Jesus, in Christ's name. Help us to look to him. Amen.